other. Amen. If you have your Bible, uh, if you've turned by now to James chapter 3, I want to point you to um, a, a, a topic that is really, really important um, throughout Scripture, and James really hones in on it, believe it or not, for the next 15 verses plus. Now, it might not look like that when we, first, when we first take a deep dive into this, but it is very much the same idea, the same topic that he is dealing with in chapter 3. It's the same topic, uh, the, the, it's the same thing when you get to chapter 4. He's dealing with the same thing, and that is wisdom. Our text this morning is about wisdom, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. In verse 13, we hear these words, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. From the beginning, James gives clues that there is a clear difference between wisdom and knowledge. First, true wisdom is not merely demonstrated in what we know, but true wisdom is also demonstrated in what we do with what we know. You hear James say, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In addition to that, wisdom is not merely demonstrated in knowledge. And it is not even only demonstrated in what we do with knowledge, but it can also be measured in what knowledge is doing to us. In other words, how is what we know shaping our emotions and our hearts? So there are certain actions that are connected with wisdom, but there is also certain attitudes that are connected with wisdom. You hear again, James in, in chapter 3, verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom is not demonstrated in brashness. True wisdom is not demonstrated in pride, but in meekness and humility. So... True wisdom is demonstrated in knowledge and understanding that fuels good conduct, action, and good meekness, attitude, behavior. By the way, is this, is this not the way of Jesus? When we read of Jesus and we, when we look in our Gospels, this is what we see in Jesus. We see Jesus going about doing and performing good works out of love for the world. But we see him going about in a meek and gentle spirit. Is this not the way of Jesus? When you look to the cross, for example, and, and you see him doing a work, laying down his life for the salvation of many, but doing so with otherworldly, supernatural meekness and gentleness. James, in calling us to this wisdom, is urging us to follow the wisdom that was most clearly demonstrated in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With this wisdom in mind, or with this vision of wisdom in mind, James is asking, who is wise among you? Who is wise among us? Those that are watching on Facebook or YouTube, who is wise among us? Who displays the actions of godly wisdom with the attitude of godly wisdom. Now, to further delineate godly wisdom or to further separate godly wisdom from worldly wisdom, 
James gives us a clear picture and vision of what worldly wisdom actually is. It starts in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So godly wisdom is not bitter jealousy. Godly wisdom is not selfish ambition. This is worldly wisdom. But before we go any further, we need to answer the question, what is bitter jealousy? And, of course, we need to answer the question, what is selfish ambition? First, bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is the or a craving that looks at people and looks at what they have to the point of resentment. When we say what others have, we can be talking about a number of different things. We can be talking about money, beauty, possessions, athletic ability. But the most dangerous aspect of jealousy is the pursuit of the unseen things. The unseen things that the seen things oftentimes seem to provide us. Power, influence, acceptance, comfort, security. Jealousy is a yearning that looks at people holding these internal and external things and saying to ourselves, they aren't as deserving of these things as I am. And this yearning for what others possess can lead to all sorts of turmoil, can lead to all sorts of division and conflict. Selfish ambition, on the other hand, is a craving for these same things externally, money, beauty, possessions, talent, giftings, and internally, power, acceptance, influence, comfort, security. However, selfish ambition is a yearning that looks past people for these things. Selfish ambition says, I don't care enough about other people to be inconvenienced and stopped by them. From getting these things. In fact, if other people get in my way, I'll do whatever is necessary to move them aside and get what it is that I'm in pursuit of. James uses a Greek word for ambition here that is actually very interesting because the only time that is used, or, or, the, or, the, or the only time that is used before this New Testament use of it, is found when it's used by the philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle uses it to describe the narrow-minded partisanship and partisan passion of greedy politicians in his day. This, this narrow-minded partisanship that led to divisiveness and led to corruption is this kind of single-minded focus to be great politically despite who I have to trample on in order to get there. One scholar draws the connection to James with, with the connection to Aristotle by saying that Aristotle's use of ambition makes excellent sense in James. Some who pride themselves on their wisdom and understanding are displaying a jealous, bitter partisanship that is the antithesis of the humility produced by true wisdom. 
This ambition pursues victory for my side at all costs. It doesn't matter how it wins. It doesn't matter how much destruction is left behind when it wins. It doesn't matter who is looked over or who is ran over in order to win. It just needs to win. This is the very definition of worldly wisdom. Worldly, worldly wisdom is looking over those around us, looking past those around us, and sometimes looking at those around us and saying, how can I get what I want? One Arthur frames it this way. He says, a wisdom in the world measures everything by how it affects you. It's concerned with how you can advance yourself, promote yourself, or assert yourself. When looking at conversations and circumstances, the question at the forefront is always, what can I get out of this? By the way, jealousy and selfish ambition, along with the destruction that it leaves, is seen all throughout Scripture. When we look to the Scriptures, for example, in the Old Testament, we find jealousy throughout. We find jealousy from the very beginning. The first two children born in this world, Cain and Abel, a man immediately pitted against his brother. And how and why? Jealousy. Jealousy was sparked because of God accepting his brother's offering, Abel's offering, while rejecting Cain's offering. And where did that jealousy lead? It led to murder in cold blood, Cain murdering his innocent brother. In Genesis 37, we see a band of brothers jealous of their younger brother because he had the favor of his father. The Bible declares that his father loved him more than the older brothers, and the older brothers hated him for it. Who was this young man that had his father's love? Joseph. Where did this jealousy lead? It led to his brothers plotting and succeeding in selling Joseph into slavery. In Samuel 18, we see this king who, who has this young servant, young soldier who he has recruited, this, this young mentee who he has brought into his kingdom and who has done nothing but serve him courageously and selflessly. Now, the king's name was Saul. The young man's name was David. Upon returning from one battle, there was a song that the women of the city met King Saul and young David with. This song went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. The Bible says that Saul responded with these words. They have ascribed to David ten Tens of thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Did you see that? Jealousy, selfish ambition, 
Saul's ambition to stay on top and the jealousy that was ignited that day because of David, because David was being celebrated more than he was, seemingly was more popular than he was, became a cancer in Saul's soul. We learn later in that chapter even that this jealousy and ambition opened Saul's soul up to the influence from evil spirits, which is very interesting in light, in, in light of James's words in chapter 3. Look again at verse 15 of chapter 3. This is not the wisdom, jealousy, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. James said that this type of wisdom, which, by the way, is very much the type of wisdom that, we, that is built into many of the patterns and thoughts of our culture and our society, that this kind of wisdom is actually, at its root, influenced by demons. This kind of wisdom. Some of our cultural heroes live with this kind of selfish ambition where it's about me and my dreams and my passions. The culture is teaching and training us and training our children more and more um, that, that, we, that we, have to, we have to live for us. And basically we have to say, hey, e even if you have to leave some innocent people behind, so be it. Our kids, our spouses, our loved ones, they don't matter, at least not as much as my pursuits and my dreams and my passions. I love my church family, but I don't have time for them. Why? Because I am pursuing my dreams, my passions. I love my my natural nuclear family, but I don't have time or energy for them. Why? Because I am pursuing my dreams, my passions. James is saying this seductive way of thinking is not just selfish, but it can even be from the devil. I mean, doesn't it make sense, though? If the devil had wisdom, which he does, he has his own brand of wisdom, what will we expect that wisdom to look like? What will we expect that wisdom's theme to be? Me, 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 me. Does this even sound like God's wisdom to you? Of course not. God's wisdom is heard in Jesus. Remember, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. God's wisdom is heard in his apostle Paul. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you among yourselves. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, have what mind? The mind that in humility counts others more significantly than itself. The mind that looks not only to its own interests, but to the interests of others as well. 
Why is this so important? Well, James explains in verse 16. He says, for where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This is why godly wisdom is so vitally important. And this is why godly wisdom must be fought for as opposed to worldly wisdom. Because worldly wisdom is the soil upon which disorder, all disorder, and all vile practices can grow. You don't have to think very long or very hard about this. How many churches have gone up in flames because of the selfish ambition of a pastor or a team of deacons or a team of congregants that say, I want my way. I want my idea to be accepted. I want my spot or my platform. How many marriages have gone up in flames because one or both of the spouses are fighting for what I want? How many nations have gone up in flames? Because of the selfish ambition of leaders saying, not for thee, for me. You can trace all kinds of division, all kinds of corruption, all kinds of disruption, and all kinds of destruction back to the desire of me, for me, and about me. The result for worldly wisdom, the wisdom of self, the wisdom of the devil is destruction, disruption, and division. Now, as we turn to chapter 4, real quickly, James begins to unpack this even more fully. He says in verse 4, for example, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Chapter 4 is not an introduction of a new thought. It is the continuation of the same thought in chapter 3. You know, sometimes when we read this text in chapter 4 and we hear the words about friendship with the world, our minds immediately begin to make the typical associations that we make when we think about worldliness. We begin to make associations to drunkenness and addictions. We begin to make associations to sexual immorality and the like. And I'm sure James's understanding of worldliness is broad enough to include those types of sins. But we need to expand our thinking a little more to fully capture James's thoughts here. The worldliness that James is confronting is the same worldliness he was confronting in chapter 3. So what does that mean? It means when we read verse 4, we hear this language about friendship with the world being enmity with God. We shouldn't simply think in terms of gross sexual immorality or rank atheism or crazy addictions. When we read that making yourselves friends with the world is making yourself an enemy of God, we need to hear that in the context of embracing worldly wisdom. In other words, friendship with the world is rejecting the type of wisdom of meekness and humility, mercy and peace, and instead pursuing the type of wisdom filled with jealousy and selfish ambition. Friendship with the world is pursuing the type of wisdom that looks at people and says, I should have what they have. I deserve it more than they do. 
It's the type of wisdom that, or, or friendship with the world is pursuing the type of wisdom that looks at people and sees them as only tools to get what I want. Or it completely looks past people altogether because it can't be inconvenienced with caring for someone else's good besides its own. Friendship with the world is the embrace of worldly wisdom, the embrace of the wisdom of self, the embrace of the wisdom of the demonic and the devil, the embrace of the wisdom of me, me, me. This connection between worldly friendship and worldly wisdom is made even clearer in the beginning of chapter 4. In verse 1 it says, what causes, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James is dealing with apparently a group of folks in the church that have let division creep in. And he's asking, why do you fight and why do you quarrel? The same answer can be given to our questions. Why do we divide? Why do we bicker? Why do our relationships fall apart? Why do our families feud? Why do our churches split? And James gives the answer. Continuing verse 1, he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Why are they fighting? Why are they splitting? Why are they dividing? Why are they feuding? Why do we do the same things? Because we've all subscribed in those moments to worldly wisdom. The wisdom that screams, I got to get mine and you got to get yours. The wisdom that screams, me first. You want you want, and you want more. You want comfort. You want power. You want acceptance. You want influence. You want safety. You want security. You want, you want, you want, and when you want, you want for you. James says in verse 3, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now notice what James is saying here. He's saying that even their prayers have gone unanswered. Why? Because they don't want the answer to their prayers for God's glory. They don't want the answer to their prayers for the common good of their neighbors. They want the answer to their prayers for themselves. One pastor in speaking about this text said that whenever we petition God in prayer, we should ask ourselves this question. Listen, how will God's program be advanced through the granting of my request? This is how we should ask when we ask, or this is what we should ask when we ask. But this is not what's happening here, is it? And that's often not what, what, what's happening with us. Far more than some, uh, than, than some of us would, would care to admit, we are only asking God for us. You want what you want, but 
you only want it for you. Not for others, but for you. And family, when we are driven by passions like this, we are in the breeding ground for division, for conflict, for war, for broken relationships. James is warning us that a community cannot and will not survive when the primary pursuit of its members is me. But even more importantly, James is warning us that a people whose posture is turned so inward towards itself that it looks past others for what it wants or looks at others as tools to get what it wants is also a people who have turned themselves against God. James says that this is friendship with the world. This is making ourselves enemies of God. So what do we do? Especially in light of the truth that we know about ourselves, that it is super easy to be about me. What do we do? We turn from worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. We turn from the world to God. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do we do? We remember godly wisdom is founded in godly grace. The first thing that we do is we remember that godly wisdom is founded in godly grace. We remember that God has offered us grace in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the question, will God the Father still offer friendship to those who have made enemies of him, those who have turned to the world, those who have turned to the world's wisdom? The answer is yes, because he gives more grace. That's why he sent his son to come and die on a cross for sinful people who without him were destined for hell, were destined for eternal wrath, were destined for eternal damnation. That's why anybody who truly calls on the name of the Lord for salvation will receive that salvation. And that's, and, and that's why even in our failures of embracing worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom that comes from God, he still offers grace. We start with that. In turning to godly wisdom, we start with that reminder that our sin is indeed great, but his grace is greater. What else do we do? In turning to godly wisdom, we remember that it is founded on godly grace. But in turning to godly wisdom, it means that we stand against the devil by submitting ourselves to God. Verse 7 and 8, James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The way that we resist the devil is through a rejection of his wisdom for God's wisdom. Now, of course, the picture that James presents to us is a picture of defense. It's a picture of defense against a, against a formidable and forceful foe, resistance. You see, the devil will not go easily 
on us in his onslaught of worldly wisdom against you. The devil will throw everything he has at you to convince you that his way is better, his wisdom is better. Remember the onslaught that he gave Eve in the garden? The onslaught that said, you should have more than God. God is keeping you away from what you are deserving of. You see that ambition at work? The devil will stop at nothing to convince us that his wisdom is better than God's. That your world is better off when you simply say, to heck with everybody else. And to heck with everything else. And you just, and you just say, I'm going to look out for me, me, me. I don't have time to serve anybody. I got to go after, I got to go after mine. In fact, haven't you already been fighting that fight in your life? You're familiar with this fight. This is nothing new for you. Haven't you been already, haven't you already been at war with the devil in your body in such a way where, where you're just tempted to say to heck with everybody else. I just got to go for me and I just got to take care of me and I just got to do things for me. Haven't you been at war in your finances in such a way where you say, no, I can't give to anybody else or anything else. I just, I just got to do this thing for me. At war in your relationships. Hurt so many times where you say, man, listen, forget all of that. Me, me, me. And how you use your time and your energy in the pursuit of whatever it is that you're pursuing, there seems to be no more time for anybody else remaining. And so you say, me, me, me. Haven't you already been tempted to say that, saints? To heck with this life of love and sacrifice and unity, humility. When you look at this world and we look at everything that's going on in this world and we look at all the racial tension and, and, and animosity and you look at the partisan and political tension and animosity, don't you, just, don't you just feel tempted at times to just say, man, forget all of that, me. I'm not worried about anybody else. I have so much more happiness, at least I think. I have so much more peace, at least that is what he's telling me. If I just worry about me, and that's what he wants you to do. You see, the devil is a formidable foe. But saints, that's the embrace of the world. That's the embrace of worldly wisdom. That's the embrace of the demonic. Can't you see it? One theologian, when he describes hell, he describes it as a place where no one sacrifices for the other. He describes it as a, as a place all the way down to the smallest of ways, everyone is looking out for themselves. This is the temptation that we face every day in our smallest decisions. We are fighting the war of living our lives for ourselves only. This is what leads to fights and quarrels among you, according to James. This is what leads to wars and conflicts. This is what leads to the arrogant 
rejection of God. This is what it means to embrace the devil rather than resist him. So what do we do? James gives us the high point in verse 7 and 10. He gives us our plan of action. Submit ourselves to God and we will resist the devil. And when we resist the devil, he will flee. Humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt us. To submit ourselves is to embrace God's authority. It's to reject the devil's wisdom and his authority and to embrace God's wisdom and God's authority. It's to acknowledge that his way is better. It is to reject Satan's way. Submitting to God is taking an, an approach of humble dependence. It is an acknowledgement that we cannot live out any of this wisdom without him. It is an acknowledgement of our need for his salvation. It is a rejection of self-saving. It is a rejection of the wisdom of me. And it is an embrace, and it is an embrace of Jesus. The devil dresses himself in selfish ambition. He dresses himself in bitter jealousy. So to resist him, we must resist him by living, not, but I'm sorry, so to resist him, we must resist living our lives for ourselves and must instead submit them to God by humbly embracing our need for him and through grace, humbly living our lives for him. What else do we do? We submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil. We submit ourselves to God. But we submit ourselves to God through repentance. Verse 8 and 9, we hear the language of repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Draw near, God says. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. In other words, stop bouncing back and forth between the wisdom of me and the wisdom of God. Stop vacillating between your way, the devil's wisdom, and God's wisdom. Stop vacillating between friendship with the world and friendship with God. To repent of this friendship with the world is to reject the wisdom of the world and embrace the wisdom of Jesus. This is what it means to cleanse our hands. This is what it means to purify our hearts. This is what it means to be wretched and mourn and weep. It doesn't mean to dance with the world's wisdom. It doesn't mean to laugh and, and, eye, and wink the eye at the world's wisdom. It means that when we see ourselves living only for ourselves, it grieves us. What, is this, what does this wisdom look like? Chapter 3 gave us, gave us the picture. Look there with me at verse 17 and 18 as we close. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the wisdom that comes from above. Pure intent, pure motivations, not doing things because of we're trying to fix the angles to get something in return, not saying things because we're trying to set the board or set the table to get something back in return, but moving and working and acting from a desire to please God and love his people well. Peaceable. God calls us peacemakers, not just simply peacekeepers. He calls us peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, those that bring peace and create peace. You know, the only way to do that is to be a peaceable people, to be a people that's not easily offended, to be, a people that's not, to, to, to be a people that's not easily confrontational, to be a people that's not looking for confrontation, but looking to diffuse confrontation. It's looking to breathe peace in conflict. Be gentle, open to reason, ears open, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, full of mercy, leaving room for grace, forgiveness, leaving room to overlook the faults of those around you. This is the way of Jesus, saints, peace. Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. He said, peace, I give to you. My peace, I give to you. Mercy. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great Mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We received mercy. So from that mercy, we give mercy. Gentleness. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. I'm gentle. When we commit to not only Embracing what our God has done for us on the cross, but when we commit to seeking his grace daily to reflect what he has done for us on the cross, to reflect that in our lives and to reflect that towards one another and to reflect that towards neighbor, then we are submitting to God. Then we are resisting the devil. Then we are embracing godly wisdom, and then we are rejecting the world's wisdom. May it be so in Jesus' name. Let's pray.